A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. It's the story of 19-year-old Shannon Melindy, a young woman attending Emory University, a private research institution in Atlanta, Georgia. On one morning in March of 1994, Shannon was working her part-time job as a scorekeeper at a community softball complex. But when she left the softball fields that day for lunch, she was never seen or heard from again. The person responsible for her disappearance and, ultimately, her murder, would not be brought to justice until over 10 years later, in 2005, and he wouldn't admit to his crime until a year after that, in 2006. This episode is titled, And Then She Was Gone. So without further ado, let's get started. Shannon Melindy grew up in Miami, Florida, where her parents, Louis and Yvonne Melindy, had put down roots. Shannon had one sister, Monique, who was about five years younger than her, and their parents had always instilled the importance of education in both of their daughters. Shannon was a natural at nearly everything she did, and Yvonne described her daughter as every mother's and father's dream child. Yvonne said, quote, she was outstanding in whatever she did. She approached everything in life with gusto, end quote. So it should be no shock that Shannon, though not even 20 years old yet, was well on her way to a successful and bright future. ABC News reported that she was president of both her junior and senior classes at Miami Southwest High School. She was also captain of the high school debate team for three years, where she would argue cases at the Dade County Mock Trials competition, which is likely where she picked up her interest and dream of one day becoming an attorney. Shannon was also a member of the National Honor Society, and she graduated high school cum laude. Though barely out of high school, Shannon had her life plans mapped out. She actually turned down acceptance to the prestigious Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and elected instead to go to Emory University on basically a full-ride scholarship. 
at Emory, she double majored in Spanish and political science, but her long-term goal was to attend law school, then join the Navy, and eventually turn to Washington politics, where she had aspirations of one day earning a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. In the spring of 1994, everything seemed to be going according to Shannon's plans. She was a sophomore in college, excelling in her studies, and well on her way to making the life that she dreamed of a reality. Plus, she had a part-time job as a scorekeeper for the softball country club in Atlanta just to put some extra money in her pockets. According to an episode of Forensic Files, on Saturday, March 26, 1994, Shannon went to the softball club to keep score at some morning games as part of a softball tournament that was going on that weekend. Apparently, Shannon didn't normally keep score for morning games, so it was a first for her. Then, around noon that day, Shannon left the complex for lunch, but she never returned to the softball fields again that day, even though, from what I gather, I think she was supposed to work like she was scheduled to work and keep score for more games, but she left for lunch and she never returned. The next day, Shannon's friends and her college roommates became worried when she hadn't returned home and no one had spoken to her. However, when they first tried reporting it to police, well, they did not take it serious to say the least. Police, at first, chalked Shannon's disappearance up to a college prank. They said she had just returned from a spring break beach vacation and she must still be on spring break time. Prosecuting attorney for DeKalb County in Georgia, John H. Petrie, told Forensic Files that police were treating it like a girls gone wild situation. He said, quote, For days and days, the attitude was, this is college girls gone wild, end quote. According to ABC News, police even speculated that she may have run off to Cancun, Mexico. And one police officer told Shannon's father, Louis Melendi, quote, she'll turn up, end quote. But Shannon's family knew that she would not be irresponsible like that. Like with all her aspirations and dreams in life, running off without telling anyone wasn't even in her character, like, at all. So they knew something was wrong. Even the next day, police still weren't taking Shannon's disappearance too serious. For example, Shannon's roommate literally found Shannon's car, a Nissan 240XS, abandoned at a local sitgo gas station, and the car was unlocked with the keys still in it. So, of course, Shannon's roommate called police, but guess what they told her? They instructed her to simply drive it back to campus. What? Prosecuting attorney John Petrie pointed out that this meant the car was not processed for evidence until days after Shannon's disappearance, and by the time it was processed, several people had either driven or been inside of that car. Regardless of the police not taking it seriously, though, Shannon's friends and family certainly did. For starters, Shannon's parents, Louis and Yvonne Melindy, quickly jumped on a plane from Miami and headed to Atlanta to search for their missing daughter. They started hanging flyers with Shannon's picture on it, they posted her face on billboards, and even came up with a $10,000 reward. ABC News reported that Louis Melindy, being a Cuban native who came to the U.S. with his parents in 1961, had some sort of connections to Cuban-born actor Andy Garcia. So Lewis reached out to him, and then after that, both Andy Garcia and pro-athlete Bo Jackson even taped public service announcements seeking help to find Shannon. 
Y'all, they were doing everything they knew to do, searching high and low for any signs of Shannon, but they found no leads in the days immediately following her disappearance. A lead actually wouldn't come until 11 days later, when police were forced to start realizing just how serious this situation was. On April 6, 1994, the Emory University Counseling Center received a phone call with a male voice on the other end. The man claimed to be holding Shannon hostage. He said he had Shannon and would call back at a later time with his demands. He also told them that he had a ring of Shannon's. He said it was a ring her aunt had given her. And he told the university that she was safe, but that she also, quote, felt lonely, end quote, and missed her family. Then the man hung up. Shannon's mother, Yvonne Melindy, explained on Forensic Files how they felt after that call. She said, quote, We really thought that Shannon was still alive at that point. We were hoping that we would hear from them again, but we did not, end quote. No, the man never called back, but police were able to track the location of where the call came from. They traced it to a payphone about 20 miles away outside of a Burger King in Rex, Georgia, according to ABC News. There, in the payphone booth, police didn't find any fingerprints, but they did find a small white cloth bag with like a drawstring type of tie. And inside that bag was one of Shannon's rings, a blue topaz ring her godmother had given her, which was wrapped in masking tape. You know, most likely it was the ring the man was initially talking about in his phone call. After this, police actually began their investigation. Mind you, it has now been 11 days since Shannon disappeared at this point. But regardless, they got to work and started by interviewing every single person at the softball field that day where Shannon was last seen. And one man gave them a very interesting bit of information. According to one of the softball players in the tournament that day, a pitcher named Jerry Chastain said he noticed that the home plate umpire couldn't keep his eyes off Shannon, and not just in a look-from-afar type of way. Apparently, the umpire, a 33-year-old man by the name of Colvin Butch Hinton, would literally turn away in the middle of a pitch and go to the fence and talk to Shannon, who was sitting just on the other side of the fence, you know, doing her job of keeping score. Chastain, the softball player, said Hinton did this the entire game, which meant he was not only blatantly disregarding his job of being an umpire, but it was just odd and strange behavior, period. According to court transcripts, Chastain later testified in court saying, quote, I would throw a pitch and then mid-stride he would turn around and look at the scorekeeper behind the fence. It was like he was obsessed with her. He went to her between innings. He went to her while I was pitching. He was interested in her more than he was the ball game, end quote. When police questioned Hinton, they learned that his full-time job was with Delta Airlines, where he worked as a mechanic, and then he umpired for the softball country club in his spare time. However, that wasn't all Hinton did with his spare time. He also played sports himself, and he was active in his church, and he taught Sunday school to children. Hinton, though, admitted to police that he had spoken to Shannon that day, but he told them that he never saw her again after the game. He said he went home pretty soon after the game ended, and while he was at home, he made several telephone calls to family and friends. 
Police obviously checked his phone records and were able to confirm Hinton's alibi, but they still weren't quite buying his whole story. So they executed a search warrant of his home, but they found nothing. No evidence of Shannon or that Shannon was ever in or near Hinton's home at all. And after this, the trail basically went cold. Six months later, though, so that's the next time we get any type of break in this case, but six months later, police returned to Hinton's home. But actually, it was not because of the case of Shannon Melindy. It was actually because of a completely unrelated incident. According to an episode of Forensic Files, police went to Hinton's home to investigate a fire that had started in an upstairs bedroom. Hinton alleged that the fire was a complete accident, something with a vacuum cleaner catching on fire or something like that. But investigators took a good hard look at how the fire started, and they determined that Hinton must have set the fire on purpose. Police Sergeant Ray Ice told Forensic Files, quote, It was clearly an arson. An accelerant was poured on the floor and ignited, end quote. So, needless to say, there was clearly some sort of insurance fraud going on here, which means the police wanted to do a little more digging, literally. I'll circle back to that comment in a minute. But while they were investigating the fire, police learned something strange from Hinton's next-door neighbor, who told them that Hinton set a bonfire in his backyard about six months earlier, the same exact night Shannon went missing. And the neighbor described the bonfire as very eerie feeling, very chilling and bizarre. So, of course, police had all the more reason to search Hinton's home again. This time, though, they brought in a backhoe, literally heavy machinery, y'all, to excavate and dig up this man's fire pit in his backyard. During their search, they found nearly a dozen women's sweaters, all very petite sizes. Now, this was not only super weird, but police found it alarming because none of the sweaters belonged to Hinton's wife. They knew this because the sweaters were not the right size to fit Hinton's wife or anyone in Hinton's home at all. And I know what you were thinking, but police discovered that none of the sweaters belonged to Shannon Melindy either, especially after her parents confirmed that they didn't recognize any of them as belonging to their daughter. And, of course, Hinton denied any knowledge of the sweaters, and he said they must have been left there by the previous owner of the home. Police did send the sweaters to an FBI forensics lab in Washington, D.C., but they found no blood or any other forensic evidence on the clothing. Regardless, Hinton still had to face the consequences of making a false claim about the fire through his home insurance. In 1996, Hinton went on trial and was found guilty for the arson fire and insurance fraud. He was sentenced to nine years in prison. So, even though Hinton was the prime suspect in Shannon's murder... Her case seemed to go, like, even colder after Hinton was behind bars. The episode of Forensic Files mentioned that police, as well as the FBI, had other larger, more prioritized cases come up, such as the O.J. Simpson trial and the Oklahoma City bombing. But it didn't change the fact that Shannon's family had to live with the unknown of what happened to their daughter. I mean, I can't imagine the trauma and life-shattering feeling they must have had. Yvonne Melindy told Forensic Files, quote, 
It is life-changing. It takes a big toll on everyone. It takes a toll on your marriage. It takes a toll on your children, friends, family. We lost a ton of friends because we had people point blank tell us they just didn't want to hear about Shannon anymore because they wanted to hear about happy things, end quote. Over 10 years would pass before Shannon's family got justice for their daughter, and it would be at least another year before they learned exactly what happened to her on that day in March of 1994. You see, because it was coming up on the 10-year mark of Shannon's disappearance, and because Hinton's release date was inching closer and closer, and he was about to be released from prison for the arson fire, prosecutors decided they wanted to take a closer look at the case and reopen it, because they were convinced that Hinton was somehow involved. So, DeKalb County prosecutors, at the time, John Petrie and Mike McDaniel, hit the ground running. They first obtained tons of boxes with case files from the FBI, and they started going through them with a fine-toothed comb. They used sticky pads and made notes everywhere and highlighted key pieces of information. But at the end of the day, they knew they really needed some type of forensic evidence, especially because... They didn't have a body, which means they needed to start from the very beginning. Remember that small white cloth bag police found at the payphone? Well, the ring might have not yielded any forensic evidence. There was no fingerprints on it or trace fibers. But they thought, what about the bag itself? So they focused on the bag and learned it was manufactured by the Millheiser Corporation, which only had one customer in Georgia at the time that bought those particular bags. That customer was the Fulton Paper Company in Atlanta. Then they learned that that company, the Fulton Paper Company, only had one customer for those bags as well, which was... Delta Airlines. And remember who worked for Delta Airlines as a mechanic? Yep, that's right, Butch Hinton. According to forensic files, Delta employees used the bags to ship small engine parts for repair. During police's initial investigation, they actually found several of these bags in Hinton's desk at work, meaning he had more than enough easy access to those bags. Forensic scientists compared one of the bags from Hinton's work desk to the bag found at the payphone, and lo and behold, both bags were the same in construction and size, and the weave pattern of the cloth of the bags was identical as well. (laughs) You can tell I totally got that language from forensic files, huh? (laughs) Apparently, going back in the timeline just a little bit, during their initial search of Hinton's home when they dug up his fire pit, police also found wire ties, cleaning products, and a pair of plastic pants, like pants similar to what like a crime scene investigator might wear, and they found all of that in Hinton's fire pit when they first dug it up. But they also found nine rolls of masking tape in his garage. At the time, it didn't necessarily mean a lot to them, but now, after all these years and forensics matching the bags, they wondered if the tape from the ring and and the tape from his garage would somehow yield some sort of forensic results as well, like some they could get something off of the tapes. So they sent the tape to a forensic lab as well. When they analyzed the tape from the ring and compared it to the rolls of the tape from Hinton's garage, they noticed something that had, in fact, been overlooked years earlier. They noticed the tape had tiny metallic fibers or particles that were pretty unique. 
The metallic fibers were made of copper-nickel alloy, and they soon discovered that the only industry using that particular alloy was the aerospace industry. According to forensic files, Delta Airlines was using this alloy, this particular type of alloy, to coat jet engine parts, which means that same metal alloy was indeed on the rolls of masking tape from Hinton's garage because he had taken the tape from work, just as he did the cloth bag. So, essentially, the tape was a match to, and now they could officially prove it. Clearly, they now had the forensic evidence they needed, but prosecutors dug into Hinton's background more extensively, and they discovered something so disturbing. Y'all, this man had at least three prior convictions against him. How on earth could they freaking miss that? I mean, isn't that a huge part of your job, you know, like to at least look up a potential suspect's arrest record? That part makes me so mad, if you can't tell. Anyway, NBC News reported that Hinton's first known offense came in 1977 in Kentucky. In that case, he was charged with criminal attempt to commit rape after he and his brother attempted to kidnap their boss's wife. What the hell? But that was simply handled in juvenile court, and his only sentence was counseling. Then, according to ABC News, in Illinois in 1982, Hinton pleaded guilty but mentally ill to charges of unlawful restraint and indecent liberties with a child after he kidnapped a 14-year-old girl whom apparently his brother was dating at the time. Y'all, this fool abducted this young girl and tied her up in his basement before attempting to sexually assault her. Thankfully, by the grace of God and perfect timing, Hinton's first wife at the time actually walked in on him while he was assaulting the girl. His ex-wife later testified against him in the murder trial of Shannon Melindy, and she told the jury that she saw the girl tied up with tape on her mouth. What a horrifying thing for that young girl. And if you weren't already completely disgusted with this man, here's something else for you. The judge only sentenced him to four years in prison for sexual assault of that minor. A minor. And he got out in two years. Then the prick moved to Georgia and was basically able to start a completely new life as a completely free man. In September of 2005, prosecutors believed they officially had enough evidence against Butch Hinton to take him to court and try him for the murder of Shannon Melindy, even though they still hadn't recovered a body. During the trial, prosecutors argued that Hinton met Shannon at the softball field that day. They speculated that the two may have had lunch together at a nearby restaurant, and then Hinton somehow got Shannon to go with him to his house after lunch. That is where he tied Shannon up and assaulted her. Later that afternoon, while Shannon was still tied up in his home, prosecutors alleged that he made several phone calls from his house to his wife and other friends and family in efforts to establish an alibi. Then he later drove Shannon's car to the Sitgo gas station, where he abandoned it, leaving it unlocked with the key still inside. He then returned home, where he most likely killed Shannon that night, on Saturday, March 26, 1994, and then he somehow disposed of her body. He then kept her blue topaz ring and wrapped it in masking tape and put it inside that cloth bag. 
In addition, according to ABC News, prosecutors were also able to speak with five different jailhouse informants who all testified in the trial that Hinton had repeatedly implicated himself in the murder while he was in prison for the arson fire. At the conclusion of the trial in 2005, the jury found Hinton guilty of the murder of Shannon Melindy, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Prosecutors were reluctant to seek the death penalty, ultimately deciding against it, because of the fact that they never recovered Shannon's body. And, side note, Hinton was actually the first defendant in Georgia history to be convicted of murder without a body or an official crime scene. Immediately after the trial and long-awaited conviction, Louis Melindy, Shannon's father, spoke at a press conference on behalf of their family. He said, quote, The focus of our family has always been to stop Butch Hinton from hurting another family, from putting another family through what we've been through. There's many Butch Hintons out there, and we must change our laws so families don't have to go through what we've been through. End quote. Now, normally... That would be where I'd wrap up and conclude the story. But y'all, a year later in 2006, Shannon's family, as well as the rest of the world, finally got the answers to questions they'd had for over 12 years. They learned, according to Hinton, exactly what happened that day in 1994. Apparently, after his final appeal was rejected in 2006 by the Georgia Supreme Court, Hinton broke down during a prison visit with his father, and he confessed to killing Shannon Melindy, calling himself a coward. Uh, you think? Mind you, up until this point, even though he was found guilty in court, Hinton had adamantly denied the murder. So, after he confessed to his father, his attorney called DeKalb County authorities and requested a meeting with Hinton, indicating that Hinton had something he wanted to tell them. Hinton said, quote, I can't live like this no more. If I have to stay in a cell for 23 hours a day for the rest of my life, at least I can breathe. She can't. The prison that I am in is no comparison to the prison inside of me. End quote. Now, I'm going to go through the details of the crime, but fair warning in advance, it may be hard to hear. So, like I always say, if that's not something you feel comfortable listening to or that you really want to hear, feel free to skip ahead. In his confession, Hinton told authorities that he had initially planned to rape another woman that day, but she ended up refusing to meet with him. This adds up because, according to ABC News, Hinton had told his boss at the softball club the day before that he needed to leave early on Saturday, something about he couldn't work that afternoon because of family problems. Police later learned that was clearly a lie. So when meeting up with that other woman fell through, Hinton noticed Shannon for the first and only time at the softball field that day, who soon became his new sought-out victim. As we know, he became rather obsessed with Shannon rather quickly, and he ended up inviting her to lunch. She agreed, and the two of them went to a local Burger King after the softball game ended. But as they were driving back to the softball field, Hinton faked a wrong turn and instead started heading back to his house in Rex, Georgia, about 15 to 20 miles away from Atlanta. Then, while on the way to his house, Hinton faked a leg cramp and he asked Shannon to take over driving for him. She obliged as he climbed into the back seat where he had a knife hidden under the floorboard. He held the knife to her throat and forced her to drive to his house. What are you doing? Shannon asked him. Don't argue, just drive, he told her. 
When they got to his house, Hinton then tied up Shannon, convincing her that he simply wanted to steal her car and that she'd be released, unharmed, as soon as he could sell it for some cash. While Shannon was tied up upstairs in his house, Hinton went downstairs where he began to make all those calls to his wife, his family, his friends, in effort to establish his alibi. He then went back to the softball field to get Shannon's car, which is when he drove it to the Sitgo gas station and abandoned it with the keys in it. He told authorities that he was hoping someone would steal it to throw police off his trail. After that, he returned home, untied Shannon, and raped her, a process he said he repeated again at least once that night. After the attacks, he handcuffed Shannon to a bedpost face down toward the floor. At this point, Hinton said he felt like he was in too deep and he knew he needed to kill her. He just didn't have the gall or whatever to do it just yet. Instead, he said he tried to make her feel comfortable. He asked her if she wanted or needed anything. And Shannon, he said, kept herself calm, cool, and collected the entire time. When he asked if she wanted the radio on, she simply and calmly said, yeah, Apparently, the dude even remembers the exact radio station Shannon asked for. It was 97.1 FM, a local rock station. Then he left her there that night for a few hours while he went to watch the movie Mighty Ducks with his niece and nephew and their parents. He returned home from the movie at about 10.30 p.m., and he found Shannon exactly where he left her, still calm, never once losing control of her emotions. He said, quote, She didn't ever try to scratch, no hitting. I kept telling her, as soon as I get your car sold or rid of, I will let you go. And she said, all right, end quote. Then he proceeded to rape her again at about 11 or 11.30 that night. He said he started becoming more and more frightened about what he was going to do with her, how he was going to kill her. Um, you are frightened, dude. What about her, you sick prick? Oh my gosh, that makes me so mad. Anyway, Hinton said he went to bed around midnight, and at about 2 a.m., he got up and began to wonder how he was going to take her life. Then he noticed the tie rack in his bedroom, so he grabbed one of the ties hanging on it and headed to the room where Shannon was. This creeper said he stared at her as she was sleeping on the guest room floor. He said, quote, She didn't even know I was standing there. I came over on top of her real quick. I took the tie and put it around her neck. I think I crossed it, and I strangled her right there. She stopped moving. It happened a lot quicker than I ever thought. When it happened that quick, I was so scared. I thought she was unconscious, End quote. He eventually moved Shannon's body to a rollaway dumpster on the side of his house, and around 6 a.m. the next day, he placed her body on top of a bed of logs and brush and then set it on fire with some gasoline he had in his garage. Around 7 a.m., he said, he called his father and asked to borrow his bow saw. He told his father that a tree limb had fallen on his car and he needed to remove it. His father offered to bring the saw to him, but Hinton didn't want his father to come over and see with his own eyes what his son was up to. So Hinton went to his father's house to get the saw. By the time he returned, y'all, the fire had completely incinerated Shannon's body. Then, the nerve of this man. You won't believe what this fool did next. He went inside his house, showered, dressed for church, 
and then went to teach Sunday school to children. Later that day, on Sunday at about 2 p.m., Hinton's wife, Michelle, returned home. Nothing in source material says exactly where she was, but I guess from what I gather and assume she must have just been away on a trip or something or on a weekend trip, and she didn't return until Sunday afternoon, which is how he was able to get away with all the shit he did over the weekend. Anyway, when his wife returned, he said he tried to divert her attention so she wouldn't find out anything he'd been doing. So he took her to dinner at the Olive Garden and he gave her one of the two rings Shannon was wearing. He told his wife that he had bought it from a friend who'd recently separated from his fiance. What a piece of shit. According to ABC News, he privately told authorities where he later disposed of this ring, but that information was not made public. Hinton went on to tell authorities that on Sunday night after the murder, he was becoming increasingly paranoid. So around 11 p.m., he got out of bed and cleaned up the ashes from the fire. Unknowingly and unassumingly, his wife actually held the bag he poured the ashes into. He told her he needed to clean up the yard before a landscaper came over the next day to give him an estimate for some yard work. He then left his house late Sunday night and dumped the bag of ashes in a ditch near some railroad tracks in Rex, Georgia. Regardless of his confession, Shannon's family is hesitant to believe Hinton's full story. Louis Melindy told ABC News, quote, He is a more professional criminal than the police are professional policemen. He killed her and burned her body in the backyard? The police were out there and they could not find a trace of my daughter. I don't believe that. I'm sitting here and I don't believe that, end quote. And after researching this case, I'm kind of on the same page as Louis Melindy. I mean, Hinton isn't the most trustworthy fork in the drawer, and for all we know, he could be making it all up, or at least parts of his twisted story up, so I can't blame the Melindys for being leery and speculative of Hinton's confession. The most recent news of Butch Hinton came in March of 2020. According to a press release from the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles, Hinton was denied parole in 2020 for a second time, the first time being in 2012. The next consideration by the parole board is scheduled for 2025. Before I officially close this episode, I want to share a little bit from a piece written in 2014 by Ann Vasquez, the managing editor of the South Florida Sun Sentinel. You see, Ann was a very good friend of Shannon's as they were growing up. Ann recalled how she and Shannon would sit on the bedroom floor during the prime of their adolescence, and they'd play with cheap drugstore makeup while planning their next outfits and gossiping about boys. Anne would often even go on summer vacations with the Melindys to the Florida Keys. She said that's where she learned to water ski and jump waves and even conquer her fear of treading open water. Anne also remembers the last time she ever saw Shannon. Remember that spring break vacation I mentioned earlier that Shannon had just returned from before she disappeared? Oh, and police speculated maybe she was in Cancun or something? Well, she wasn't in Cancun at all, nor had she went there for spring break because she went to Daytona Beach for spring break, actually. 
And by happenstance, a complete fluke, as Anne called it, the two of them ran into each other while in Daytona. They had gone to separate colleges, and since we know that 1994 was way before social media and even cell phones, it's not like the two friends could keep in touch like we could today in 2022. So, Anne said, when she first saw Shannon's face in the sea of spring breakers, she wasn't sure it was even actually Shannon. I mean, what are the chances? Anne said Daytona Beach was actually a rare place for either one of them to visit. So when she saw her, Anne started walking in her direction until the girl finally came into clear focus. Yes, it was Shannon. They laughed and reminisced and caught up on their college lives, and they even made plans to see each other a few weeks later when Shannon would be back in Miami visiting her family. Then the old friends hugged, said see you later, and then they both went on with their own spring break vacations. At the time, Anne had no idea that Shannon would be missing by the end of the month. When she did learn about Shannon's disappearance, though, Anne said her thoughts immediately went to Shannon's younger sister, Monique Melindy, who had just turned 14 years old five days after Shannon disappeared. So, Anne said, she wanted to go see Monique and take her a present as she tried to remember happy times from, you know, hanging out with their family a few years prior. Anne went on to say that she went through all the emotions of losing a loved one, but for a long time, she was mostly angry. Angry that Shannon was so young and had to endure something so awful. She was angry and sad that they never found her body, that there was no funeral, no official moment to mourn. But then her anger turned into fear after Hinton confessed in 2006 when she, Anne, was now a mother. She realized at that moment just how vulnerable we all really are. Anne said, quote, If evil can strike on a Saturday afternoon, snatching a smart 19-year-old with quick wit, the president of her high school senior class, an aspiring lawyer, a champion debater, the daughter of present and caring parents, it can happen to anyone, anywhere, end quote. After that realization, and after she became a mother for a second time, now having two children younger than 10 years old, Anne tries to find a balance of always worrying about them and their safety and allowing them to learn on their own, in turn encouraging more independence. Anne said, quote, I live in constant battle with myself, wrestling with a deep-seated desire to fuel my children's independence while also fighting a fear that harm may come their way, end quote. Now, I'm not a mother yet, but I can imagine the conflicted feelings of protecting your children at all costs while also allowing them to grow and learn and be independent. So I just wanted to share with all of you parents, both mothers and fathers, that you aren't alone in those thoughts or feelings about your children. Anne Vasquez ends her piece by saying, quote, Both of my children know, to varying degrees, Shannon's story. They know the world can be cruel, but they also exude a spirit of boundless optimism. They see themselves as the superheroes who can change the world. I hope they do. End quote. So hug your babies a little tighter tonight and give yourself a big pat on the back for simply being their parent and loving them as much as you do. I know that doesn't really go along with the story of the episode, but... I know somebody out there needed to hear that today. Plus, it just goes to show you how what happened to Shannon in 1994 continues to affect her loved ones today and how they will never forget her or what happened to her. 
Okay, well, I have talked your ears off for long enough today, so that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 26. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media, where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Or if you want to request a specific case or story or just say hi, you can email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. Well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Also, if you haven't noticed by now, I have an awesome new logo and cover art for the podcast, which was designed by the very talented Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.